Please help Father and give um, him the right words and make sure he doesn't make mess up in any parts and even if it makes people happy in their pride or sad in their pride, help him to speak the right words to get the message straight to their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're ready to rock and roll now. Am I on? I am on. All right, good. So we are in Romans chapter 12. I think this might be my uh, final week of our series of we're going to be different by the end of 2017. So what I'm about to teach here, if I can find Romans 12, pretty popular book. I don't know how I lost that. What I'm about to teach in Romans 12, if we can actually get it and hold on to it, and actually apply it, uh, we will be completely different people by the end of the year. We'll be completely different people in the next three months, if we can apply it consistently. That's the question. I was at a Bible study on uh, Wednesday, and I ended after an hour and 15 minutes, which if you know me, that's pretty short for a Bible study, and they were like, ah, oh, what are you doing? And I said, we need to apply what we learned the last hour and 15 minutes. You don't need any more knowledge, you need obedience. So, there you go. Alright, so this one's going to be a short one, uh, but please listen to what I'm about to say because it's eminently practical. We're going to be extremely practical. You're going to get manager practical Andrew today. Alright, Romans chapter 12. Paul, now Romans uh, has been called by many folks the most important book in the world. John Piper actually called Romans the most important book in the world. He said Romans chapter 8 was the most important chapter in the world. If you know John Piper, he makes these just bombastic statements about everything. He'll say Brian's the most important person in the world, and he's half right. Um, so, I mean, it's a very important book. So from Romans 1 all the way to Romans 11, Paul is making all these grand statements about the sovereignty of God and salvation, the sinfulness of human beings, our inability to come to God without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, uh, the stuff that Cassandra was talking about, God changing the world and all the rest of it. Lots of high theology. And then he gets to Romans 12 and he says, all right, guys, you guys from Romans 12 all the way to Romans 16, I'm going to show you how to apply this insane theology I just gave you from Romans chapter 1 to chapter 11. That makes sense? So 1 to 11 is a bunch of theology, then 12 to 16 is practical living. Okay? So that's Paul. We're starting from verse 2. You say, why are you starting from verse 2? You skipped verse 1. Not so, because a couple weeks ago when we were talking about worship, we did do Romans 12, 1. See, there's a method to the madness. Did you do that on purpose, Andrew? No, I did not. Romans 12, verse 2. Paul tells us, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. Now here's a question. What is the world? What is the world? That's the question. Paul telling us not to be conformed to something. We're going to agree with him. He's the Apostle Paul. But the question is, what is the world that Paul is telling us not to be conformed to? That's the question. And so you think about this. When you become a Christian, you start speaking languages that you don't normally speak otherwise. For example... 
When I was having a conversation with somebody this week and they were saying, you know, am I just thinking from a worldly perspective? And I thought to myself, was she using that terminology before she became a Christian? Like, you know, when you, before you were a Christian, were you walking around saying, oh, that's really worldly? There's some sort of language that you take on when you become a Christian that you don't have prior to becoming a Christian. We got a bunch of new Christians here, and your language, your vocabulary changes. This is one of the main ones. Worldly. You say, what is it? Why is it? What is worldly and why is it bad? Well, here's a couple things, okay? Number one, the world was created good by God. Isn't that true? What happens every time God creates something in Genesis 1? What does he do after he creates it? He it. It looks at it, he blesses it, says that's good. You ever mow your lawn and see an awesome job, you go, that's good. You ever clean a nasty, messy room and think to yourself, that's good. Some of you haven't had the joy of that experience. You will one day. That's good. So God created the world good. But guess what? Human beings rebelled. We rebelled against God. And so one of the real first instances we see of human beings in total rebellion against God was at the Tower of Babel. God says, I want you guys to go out and spread out. The people in Babel in Genesis 11 says, man, we're going to build a city and a tower. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to make a city. It's going to be an awesome city. We're going to make a tower. The tower is going to reach to the heavens. And we talked about this in Bible study last Wednesday. I don't think they were literally saying we're going to build a tower up to the stratosphere in the Ancient Near Eastern mind, if you were going to go up to the heavens, you were going to go meet with the gods, okay? So the idea was, we're going to build this awesome city, make a name for ourselves, and we're going to get to the gods on our own terms and in our own power. Worldliness is human beings in complete rebellion against God. It is human beings in an utter refusal to depend on God uh, for their name and for their access to him. We're going to get to God our way. This is a very important understanding about worldliness. Worldliness is not atheism. Atheism is actually very new. For the majority of human history, all of us believed in God or gods or something that was higher than us, and we all believed that we had somehow to get to him. Okay? Uh, so I guess a worldly person could claim to be an atheist, but for the most part, worldliness is about your own pride and you getting to God and your own power and your own strength. That is worldliness. Even the Romans had their gods that they burned incense to and they worshipped and all the rest of it. One of them later on being Caesar himself. Same thing with the Egyptians. Okay? So it's, worldliness is a system of rebellion and human pride that is collectively turning its back on God. And here's the important thing. It's not one particular individual. It is an actual system. It is a system of thought, a way of thinking, a way of living. You eat, sleep, live, breathe the world. Uh, the closest analogy I can bring to it is the Matrix. One of the moments that I realized that I was an adult was when I, I think it was Chloe, I was talking to somebody about The Matrix. So I was like, you know the movie, The Matrix. She had no clue what I was talking about. I said, man, I'm old. I said, you need to watch that movie. The Matrix was about being born into this, basically a computer program, and the whole thing was a complete and total lie. It's a complete lie. It wasn't the real world. 
And the job of the whatever, the good guys, was to bring you out of the matrix so that you could see the world for what it was. And everything the guy had ever seen or heard or eaten was a lie. So for example, he got out of the matrix and he goes, I can't move my legs. Because what had happened was they had laid them down in this computer simulation. And one of the good guys says, you can't move your legs because you've never used them. Because his entire life he was just laying down. See, he was in this system from birth. And they had this very cool metaphor of him being basically born out of that system. And it was obvious where they got that idea. Okay? So here is Paul, and he's saying, look, wait, before you were a Christian, you were born into that. You were born into that. In John chapter 15, verse 19, Catherine, you know this verse, Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you. But as it is, I chose you out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. See, what happened was, salvation in that context is to be taken out of this system. It's to be taken out of the matrix. It's for Jesus to pull you out and say, hey, the way you've been living with your back to me and your face to the mirror is completely and totally false. That's a lie. You were not created in your own image, which is what mirror living is. You're just looking at yourself all the time because you are the pinnacle of everything and your back is toward God. And God says, no, 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 no. That's a lie. Actually, turn the other way. Turn your back to the mirror and look at me. This is ultimate reality. That's what it means to be taken out of the world. It's to finally experience reality in truth. And then you go, oh, that's why everything is the way that it is. You see, C.S. Lewis said something to the, and be careful when you read C.S. Lewis, but C.S. Lewis said something to the effect of, I don't just believe Christianity because, you know, I'm convinced by very good arguments. I believe in it just kind of like the way I believe in the sun because by it I see everything else. Like God completely reoriented his view on what reality was and what everything was. And so now our relationship to the world is very curious. Because on the one side, in John chapter 15, Jesus said that the world would hate us. Didn't it say that? He said, if you were it, its own, it would love you. But because I took you out, now the world hates you. He says, the world hates you. So you go, man, Jesus loves me. And there's this whole system that's set up against me. He must want me out of it. Isn't that true? I mean, you love your kid, you wouldn't leave them in some horrible system that's dead set against them, would you, that hates them? John chapter 17, Jesus says, I am leaving the world, but they still are in the world, and I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them. Jesus didn't ask us to be taken, for us to be taken out of the world. He asked us, asked for our faith to be maintained while we stayed in this world that was dead set against him and us. And the question is, why? Well, the answer is very simple. If you get taken out of the world, how can you bring your family members out? How did you get taken out of the world? It was somebody that got taken out of the world that took you out of the world. Isn't that true? Now you get out of the world, now you want to escape. <laughs> now, no, the scripture doesn't tell us to escape the world. And it also tells us something very curious. 
Even though the world hates us, look at verse 2. The world is also going to try to get us to what? Look at verse 2. What does the world want to get us to do? Conform. I hate your guts. But if you come and be like me, then we can talk again. Then we can be cool. I'll stop harassing you. Life will be easier for you. Why are you always swimming upstream? Why are you always going against the tide? Why are you always going against the grain? Just chill, man. Just be like us. Conform. Paul says, don't do that. Don't conform yourself to the world. Now, 1 John tells us, and James tells us, a whole bunch of stuff about the world. In James 2, he says, man, if you make yourself a friend of the world, you're a what? You're an enemy of God. There is literally no other option. You're either a friend of God and an enemy of the world or a friend of the world and an enemy of God. There is no in-between. But the world, even though it hates you, is also going to try to get you to conform to it. How do you fight back? Where is the battlefield taking place for worldliness? In the, in the mind of the Apostle Paul, the answer is simple. Look what it says. Don't be conformed to this world, to this system, with its back towards God and its face to the mirror. Don't be that. What? But be transformed. You know that word for transformed is used two other times in the New Testament. And in both places, it was when Jesus was on top of the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And it said he was transfigured, and he became this beautiful, crazy, brilliant God-man that he was. He kind of said, okay, guys, this is who I really am. Just check it out for a second. That is the word that Paul uses. What is happening? What he's saying is, hey, you, just like Jesus, had all this glory but he was veiling it. You have glory that you need to be transformed into. How? By the renewal of your mind. By the renewal of your mind. Paul's strategy for overcoming worldliness is absolutely practical. Paul says the battlefield is in your mind. Don't get too religious. Don't get too religious. You see a demon under every rock. Every bad thing happens, it's a demon. Nope, not so. Do I believe demons are real? Absolutely. But where is the battlefield here? Paul say, now, don't be conformed to the world. You watch out for those demons, man. That's not what he says. He says, you can be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Think about what you get inundated with every single day. You wake up. Turn on the radio, turn on the TV. You say, I don't do that. I don't watch TV. I don't listen to radio. I don't listen to podcasts. Okay. You're driving. When you're driving down the street, where does your mind wander to? Or walking. Or walking. Or running. Where does your mind wander to? See, one of the clearest examples of what your mind is set on is where your mind goes when you are not focusing. Very simple test. Look, when you're in love, you're madly in love with someone. 
This is madly. This is just kind of. Where does your mind go when you're not focusing when you're madly in love with someone? Them. Isn't that true? You go, hey, 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 Jeremy, what are you doing? Hey, talk to me. Where were you? Has anybody ever asked you where are you? That happens to me a lot. It's my personality test. I took a personality test, so I was like, oh, okay, that excuses it. I think the personality test is going to hurt us at some point. It's my personality. But when, you're, when you are not focusing on something, whatever is occupying your mind, that is what your mind is focused on. Some of you, it's trauma. Something bad happened to you. So when your mind isn't focusing, that's where, that's where the ticker's going. Let me be as gentle with you as I possibly can. If your mind is constantly, if the ticker's constantly going back to your trauma all the time, that's still your trauma. It's still a form of looking in the mirror it's still a form of not focusing totally on God. Isn't that true? I mean, look, come on, guys. Isn't it true that if I am constantly, all the time, my ticker is going toward pizza, I'd say, man, you are obsessed with food. Going toward money, you'd say, man, that dude is unhealthily obsessed with money. Well, if my mind is constantly only going to my trauma, when you say at some level, man, you are unhealthily obsessed with your trauma. And there are whole bunches of people in the world system that will tell you to keep going there. There are whole industries, listen to me, there are whole industries in the world system that are designed to profit off of our trauma. There is a sense in which dwelling on our trauma is a form of worldliness that we can get conformed to. The big heavy metal guy back in the day, or the big metal headed back in the day. Love me some rock and roll. What is rock and roll music about mostly? Rebellion. The devil. It's mostly about rebellion. And trauma. This horrible thing happened to me, so that's why I'm playing loud music, and I'm very angry because this bad thing, terrible thing happened to me, and I'm justified in being angry. You focus on your trauma. Let me ask you, what does focusing on, what fruit, what good fruit has come from focusing on your trauma? What about a person? All your minds focus on a person. You know, when a, when a guy is trying to demonstrate that he's a good dad, my kids are my world. All the time, your mind, your ticket's going back to your kids. Well, they're your kids, aren't they? Is that the concept that you see in the scripture? Did Jesus come down, die on the cross? Did he say, if anybody wants to follow me, they must put me to the side and center their children? That's not what Jesus said. Now, if you were to go out into the world and say, there's nothing more important to me than my children, would people in the world understand that? Would they agree with that? They'd say, oh, that makes sense. If you were to say, man, I love my wife, there's nothing more important to me than that, would they understand that? What if you said, I love my job? Man, I'm dedicating my life to my career. This guy, basketball guy, LeBron James, he just recently apologized to his uh, wife and kid because he said, 
you know, I basically sacrificed all of you guys to be great. And then he said, I mean, I'm going to keep doing that. But uh, thank you for your sacrifice. And you know what those sportscasters were saying? They're like, that's a guy who's committed to greatness. See? That's worldliness. Now, if LeBron were to say, you know what? I don't think basketball is that important. I'm going to focus my entire life now on my wife and kids. Most of you in this church would say, that's a good thing he did. What a sacrifice. Still worldly. If God is not at the center of it, then it's worldliness. You see how deceptive this can be. You can look at a guy in the first instance and go, man, that's really worldly. But in the second instance, not so much because you're still in the matrix in your mind. You see, anything that is not centered completely, totally on God is worldliness. Anything that doesn't have God as primary is worldliness. And if there's any part of your mind when you're not focusing, that shifts to something else. Watch it. Are you journalers? Are you guys big journalers? I'm a big journaler. Go back and look at your journal for the last six months. Go look at your checkbook for the last six months. I got a nice, very gentle rebuke from uh, Cassandra. She said, I, I haven't had any teaching on money, so I don't know what to do with the money. That's my fault. What does your checkbook say about what world you're living in? I'm just going to let that hang. Stop and think it through. You know, I mean, with me, it would be Starbucks and uh, Gronkowski and uh, books. Man, this guy loves books. He loves, he loves, he loves caffeine. See, that's what I said. This is a very, very practical study now. What is the center of your life? Notice Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, the tense of the verb of transformation is a couple things. One, it's supposed to be a continuous thing. Okay? So when Jesus snatched you out of the world, on the one hand, you're completely out of the world. Huh? But on the other hand, you still have thought processes that are still in that system that need to get constantly reprogrammed. Paul is saying you've got to get reprogrammed. Even in the way that we dress. I was having a conversation with somebody and they said, hey, is this cool for the summer? Now, in my mind, I was like, no. He said, what? But the Lord was like, how about you be quiet and get her to start thinking with her mind about things for once. That's your job as a teacher, by the way, if you're a teacher. It's not to spoon feed people. Your job is to get people to work on mind renewal. I said, well, what do you think? What do you think the Lord's telling you? Then I said, how did that even happen? This is going to be practical. Listen to what she taught us. I said, how did that happen? Why is that even a question? She said, well, we're having this discussion about that, and then boom, this thought popped in my head. Just a random thought. How many random thoughts pop into your head that you completely ignore? Those are God. I said, well, I mean, is that, is that a thought that you usually would think? No. I was going around, whatever, not even thinking about it. Well, that's probably God. You know what she said after that? She said, done deal. 
discussion's over. I know what to do. The minute she recognized, man, that was good, it was over. We are so inundated with worldly thinking that we don't even know when God is saying, hello! Now, to me, that thing was obvious. And you know what the Lord showed me? He said, Andrew, how many obvious worldly things do you do that if you were to ask another person, they'd say, no way! But you're ignoring the voice of God. See? This is so important. When you're going through, when you're picking your clothing, is God even in your mind? Has it even crossed your mind what you should wear? Now, there's a difference between legalism, okay, and obedience. There's a difference between conformity to legalistic standards and conformity to who God wants you to be. As I told that person, I said, there is no text verse where I can say you can and can't wear this. So I'm sorry, you're going to have to come to your own conclusion on that. So we're not going to be legalistic here and tell you, you know, there's certain churches, you get her, your dress has to be here. I'm not doing that. What I'm saying is, is the way you're dressing even a thought as far as how it relates to God? How about how we speak? How about music we listen to? How about the things we watch? Every decision that we make is a decision either for the world or for God. Very simple. That's what, isn't that what he said? And if you don't think that you have unconscious worldly mindsets and attitudes about things, you're wrong. This is one of the major things that have been hitting me over and over again as I've gone in this quest of trying to change. Where I was like, oh man, this idea was completely worldly and ungodly. Crazy, crazy stuff. Somebody says something to you, talks about you behind their back. I go, okay, you know what? I'm not going to talk about them behind their back. I'm just never going to talk to them ever again. Well, is that God's standard? Couldn't a worldly person understand me if I were to say that? But I'm patting my back because I don't do the same to them. I just do worse and completely pretend that you're off the face of the planet. No, how about actually proactively loving that person and seeking that person out? That is something that a worldly person couldn't comprehend. Are you living... I'm not talking about when you go to Planned Parenthood. God bless you for going to Planned Parenthood. Listen to me. Are you living in such a way in your normal, practical life that would confuse a worldly person? Like if a worldly person could like jump into your everyday, I'm not talking about events where you're doing sell stuff, doing a barbecue. We're going to do a lot of barbecues this summer, spring. I'm talking about your normal life, your nine to five. Do you work in a way that would confuse a worldly person? Do you parent in a way that would confuse a worldly person? And I'm not saying being a flawless parent. That can't be it. But when you pull your kids aside and say, man, i got to repent to you because I lost my temper again. Wouldn't that confuse a worldly person? Like, you're apologizing to your kid. You're saying, you're asking your eight-year-old for forgiveness. You're a grown man. I mean, everybody loses it. See, see, is your practical life confusing to a worldly person? Or would they look at your life and go, oh, well, you're like me, and you go to church. 
a lot of this, we got this all wrong. I mean, isn't this a lot of uh, a lot of our outreach strategies? And I say our, I'm talking about the church in America. A lot of times in the church in America, we, what we say to people, unbelievers, is, man, I'm just like you. Only I go to church. Or, man, I'm exactly like you. I'm just forgiven. That's not true. That's not true. You're called out of the world. You're not exactly like them. You know what? I, I remember something very specific. I was out there playing basketball with my Somali friends. And we're having a good time, and I had this crazy, strange moment of loneliness. And they all loved me. I said, God, what is this? And he said to me, you're not them. You're not them. You're an, you're an outsider right now. And then he says, you got me. Is that good? I said, you're not like them. I'm not superior to anybody, and neither are you. The fact of the matter is, we got called out of a system. So we cannot conform to that system. There has got to be something completely different about me and you when we're at work and how we parent, how we sleep, how we eat, how we don't eat, why we exercise, why we won't exercise, everything. And many of us who are legalistically inclined are going to go, I need to go home and make a list. And I'm going to start going, A and B, we're going to put it in Excel. I know Kyle, right? Uh, <laughs> we're going to put this in Excel, and I'm going to de-worldify my life. That is not what Paul said. He said, go into your, just go with the mind. And whatever happens as your mind gets renewed, all those other things will follow. So to Stevie's point, this is a diagnostic. What happens with your checkbook is a diagnostic. Now you're going to be legalistic and worldly and think the fix is, I'm going to start buying a lot of Christian stuff. I'm going to give the compassion. That's still worldly. Because remember what I said worldly was. It is us, with our own power and effort, trying to achieve something to get to the gods or God. No, here's what we're going to do. We're going to renew our minds. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Interesting, that's in the middle passive, getting technical here, but middle passive, this is basically what it means, okay? It means something is being done to you, and it means that you're cooperating, okay? So some of this is God is going to do this to you miraculously out of nowhere, and some of this is you got to put yourself in a situation that's more uh, applicable to you renewing your mind. What's the number one way to renew your mind, Cell 53? Your Bible. So happy when you talked about that. You said, man, what does self history say? I don't know. This is the Bible. Man, I need, I need to read my Bible more. And I read my Bible more. Chloe finished Exodus. I said, oh, bless God. This is the year we're all going to go on the Bible. I had a couple girls memorizing Romans chapter 1. How's that going? Awesome. awesome. How's that been? Has it renewed your mind a little bit? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I want you guys... You know, when you're looking at the news and you see some psychopathic, you know, new thing that's happening on TV in America, I don't want you to go, Ugh! I want you to be able to match what you're seeing with some Bible verse. You know, when I see men in women's bathrooms, I'm not picking on anybody, focus here. When I see men in women's bathrooms, you know what comes to my mind? Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's what we've done. We're so wise now, we're so silly. We don't know the difference between boys and girls. 
It's so important to understand biblically why these things are wrong. A boy in a woman's bathroom isn't wrong because you feel uncomfortable. It's wrong because they're denying the fact that they are created by God. Jesus says, Matthew 18, from the beginning, 19, from the beginning the Creator made them what? Male and female. Male and females are distinctions that God made, not what we made. This is just an example. And so as you're going through life, do you have biblical understandings of why a bad thing is bad and why a good thing is good? That's one way to get your mind renewed. You ever thought to yourself, you ever been upset about something and said, okay, why am I angry? Like, where is a biblical passage that demonstrates that I should be angry in this situation? Because there are biblical passages that, that you should get mad. Otherwise, we're going to say Jesus was sinful for clearing the temple? That's not true. Here's the question. Why was Jesus mad about the temple in the first place? What was upsetting him? Do you know? Okay, good. Very good. Read your Bible. That's how you get your mind renewed. This is the way that you don't conform. You know when Jesus says things like the last will be first and the first will be last? What he's saying is, by your definition as a worldly person, a first person is really a last person in the kingdom. And by your definition as a worldly person, a last person is really the first person in the kingdom. People come to me, they go, oh, you guys are so good taking care of those downtown people. What are you talking about? I am among the first in the kingdom of God. Okay? I know that for a fact. The reason people think you're a superhero for working with downtown people is because they're still worldly. And they don't understand that principle of the last being first and the first being last. They're very good, well-meaning people. They're trying to encourage you. But they really, really think that you're, you're, you're really going out of your way to help these poor people. No, you need these people. You got set up in suburbia. You got set up as one of the firsts. And you go down there and help some of the least of these. That's a blessing for you. It's a privilege. You're around one of the princes in the next world. But if you don't, if you don't see the world from a biblical perspective, you're going to see the world from a worldly perspective. It's all a lie. How do you get the truth? Get yourself grounded in the Bible. Memorize the Bible. Whole chunks of it. I mean, that's convicting. I'm sitting there seeing people on the side going over Romans 1, blah, 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 blah. Chattering about Romans 1. And the Lord said to me, you know, the, you know, the human mind has limited space potential. You know, I work in an electronics, you know, whatever. You got limited space potential. And I thought to myself, they are cramming their minds with some Bible. And to whatever degree that Bible is taking up that space, that is space that something else cannot occupy. So we don't need to get legalistic about what you watch and what you listen to. All I'm saying is, brother, you got limited space about what you're going to put in your head, okay? And uh, whatever you put in your head, you can't put something else there. If you got 11 units of knowledge, and you put nine units of junk in there, go for it. You're worldly. Okay? It's that simple. But isn't that encouraging? You go, man, I, list, I, I just memorized this scripture, and to be honest with you, right now, I don't feel 
unworldly. I don't feel particularly holy. doesn't matter how you feel. What does the scripture say? You delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it. What? Day and night. You do that? You meditate on the law of the Lord day and night? Now watch this. You're transformed by the renewal of your mind. Watch what Paul says. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Who wants to know what the will of God is in their life? You got four people. Okay, the rest of you guys are good. Okay. Let's try this again for the video. Who wants to know what the will of God is for their life? <laughs> yeah, y'all are worldly. You just did that for my approval. Okay. <laughs> Do you know that much of the legwork of uh, knowing the will of God has to do with renewing your mind? Look, it says by testing you might discern what the will of God is. There are so many decisions that God would make so clear to you if you would fill your mind with his things instead of junk. You would, you listen to me, your mind is an antenna and whatever you're tuning it to is a radio station you're gonna hear, okay? So if you tune your mind into junk, God is still going to speak to you. God has never stopped speaking to you, ever. Much of our trauma, how come I can't hear God? How come I can't hear God? Much of it has to do with the fact that our minds are tuned to a different station. Paul is assuming that if you tune your mind into the things of God via the word of God, that you would be able to discern what the will of God is for your life. or your church. How else do you renew your mind? Prayer. Isn't that true? One of the most amazing moments for me in the movies was watching The Passion of the Christ and Jesus is in Gethsemane. And he's praying, he's praying, he's praying. He's like, God, remove this from me, remove this from me, remove this from me. And the guy who did the acting was great. Um, and then he went back down the second time or the third time. And then you could tell there was just this one moment when his just mind was like, when the father was like, look, no, man, you got to go. You got to go to the cross. We're not going to get these people. No Jeremy without the cross, Jesus. He goes, okay, I'm going. And you could see his mind change. Like, and then he stomped on that snake. I was like, oh, man. I'll follow you over, over a mountain, Jesus, I'd follow you. But prayer, when God commands you to pray over and over and over again in your Bible, is for what reason? Because God needs it? Well, he likes hearing you. But as you combine prayer with the scripture, your mind becomes occupied. Don't you realize that prayer is a mental exercise? Unless you're praying in the spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, when I pray in the spirit, my spirit plays, but my mind is unfruitful. What shall I do? I will pray with my mind and with my spirit. That tells me that unless you're praying in the spirit, prayer is a mental exercise, which once again I will tell you. When you're praying, who is the center of your prayer? You're inevitably focused on God, even if you're praying a selfish prayer. 
He'll take it. Because you're still praying to God. And how many times have you prayed some silly, selfish prayer and God has said, hey, 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 are there other people on the planet aside from you? <laughs> you don't need a sermon to tell you not to be selfish. So many times in prayer, God will correct you gently. God will correct you in prayer and you won't even know that he did. How many times have you gone into prayer for one thing and left and you prayed for something completely different? Did that ever happen to you? You see what he just did there? You didn't even know it, did you? See? In prayer, God comes and he changes you. He changes your mind. One of the clearest ways of changing your mind, renewing your mind, is prayer. Now, what would happen if you were the type of person that combined scripture with prayer? You do realize that that is what the Psalms are, mostly are inscripturated prayers. You go, I love the Psalms. The reason you love the Psalms is because a born-again person loves the scripture in prayer and God in his genius combines that. Pray. Now watch this. Here's another practical tip. Pray the scripture. Say, the Lord is a refuge and ever-present help in times of trouble. You say, God, I'm in trouble. You're supposed to be my ever-present help. I'm banking on that. And then you go down the next line. Pray Isaiah 53, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That means you know my grief, Jesus. That means you know my sorrow, Jesus. Even if I don't feel it, that's you pray back to him the things he's already said. As you do that, do that for a week and see what happens with your mind. Here's another thing with praying the scripture. Jesus says, all the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast away. That line, whoever comes to me I will never cast away. There are so many times in my life where I would go through my entire day, that one line, praying thinking about it over and over and over again. Good to memorize whole chunks of Bible. Two lines could save your life. Two lines can change everything. Dwell on it. You know, Martin Luther said, you know, uh, the scripture is like a tree. You go to a tree, see all the low-hanging fruit. And you go up into the tree a little bit and you climb. Then you go to the top and you climb. You've got all the fruit. And then you take a stick and you beat the tree until all the fruit comes out. He said, that's how I look at a verse. A verse. All the depths of the verse of verses of the scripture Luther was talking about. So on the one hand, you want big chunks of scripture to infiltrate your mind. And then on the other hand, you want to focus on small chunks of scripture. Whoever makes himself a friend of the world is an enemy of God. All right. I don't want to be an enemy. I don't want to be an enemy of God. I want to be a friend of God like Abraham. And that the scripture said that Abraham was a what? A friend of God. Now all this stuff starts to connect. You see? So God, me and you are friends. Matter of fact, you're my best friend. And you start praying the scripture. And Paul says, if you do that as a style of life continuously, you will be able to test and discern what the will of God is. Many of you are looking for some charismatic revelation. You're looking for, for God to like come down on a glory cloud and tell you this is what you need to do. Now, we believe that God can do that. We're not going to put... Put God in the box or whatever. But here it's saying you should be able to test and discern what the will of God is by having a renewed mind. 
And if you want to know that God showing up on the cloud won't do it for you, go ask our forefathers in Israel, okay? They had God literally on a cloud, day and night. It did nothing for them. They were still worldly. They were Egyptian-y. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They got freed from Egypt, but mentally they were still back there. So all the fancy, you know, revelatory stuff is not going to... You, you need your mind renewed. Because your mind is what interprets the stuff that you're seeing in the first place. Your mind is saying, whoa, there's a giant glory cloud over there. Yahweh just freed us from, uh, from Egypt. That's awesome. Now, how are you going to interpret that? Well, Yahweh is one of many gods. And the reason we know that that's how they interpreted it was as soon as they went up the mountain, what did they do? They created other gods and worshipped them and said, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Unless your mind is renewed, it doesn't matter what miracle you see. So over and over again, if you renew your mind, you can see what the perfect will of God is. Look what it says. What is good, acceptable, and perfect. How many of you, right now, in this very moment, this is why I say to change your life, think with me. Can you say you are literally in the perfect will of God for your life? You say that with 100% confidence. I am 100% in the dead center bullseye. Zero perfect will of God for my life. How many of you are confused about what you're supposed to do next in life? Do you know that you don't have to be that way? You can know what the good, acceptable, and perfect will for God is in your life. You're not supposed to go around confused with question marks about everything all the time. That's not what we're meant for. Jesus, think about this, every single day, Jesus knew exactly where he was going to go and what he was going to do. You say, well, that's Jesus, he's God. He's also man, and he was a man that was completely in tune with the Father. Now, I'm not saying you're going to attain that, okay? What I am saying is, Peter, when he was about to die, he said, the Lord's made it clear to me, it's over. I'm, I'm going to die. Done. And Paul said, you know, I'm going to see you guys again. And then later on, in Timothy, he said, I fought the good fight. It's over. These are, these are regular men like me and you that were so in tune with God. They knew when they were going to die. They knew when they weren't going to die. They knew where they needed to go. They knew when they didn't, they didn't need to go. Sometimes it was miraculous, but a lot of it was just plain having this mind focused on the scripture and being in communion with God. You're not supposed to be confused. What are you supposed to do next? Are you supposed to take that job? What are you supposed to go? Where are you supposed to go? Are you supposed to move? Are you supposed to stay? You don't have to be confused. Why do you keep going in these crazy cycles? He will show you. How much would your life change if you could recognize three worldly mindsets and mentalities that you have right now that you don't even know about. Three. If you could recognize them and then attack them, and then it got replaced with being at the center of the will of God, perfect will of God for your life, what would change in your life? That changes everything. 
So you open your Bible, you say, God, show me yourself, but God, show me myself. Show me where I'm worldly. Show me where I'm doing silliness. I don't even know what I'm doing. Get me out of the matrix. All right. Good. Let's pray. We need prayer. God, thank you for my friends. Thank you for your word. God, thank you that we don't have to be confused all the time. God, we're so worldly. But God, help us not to be discouraged. God, when you show us our worldliness, you're not showing it to us to discourage us. You're showing us as a celebration of the fact that you're going to free us of that as well. God, I pray that my brothers and sisters who have memorized the scripture, I pray that you would reward them for that, God. God, I pray that the things that we choose to put into our minds and our hearts, God, would be only those things that help us to get closer to you. Give us wisdom, give us discernment. God, help us to pray, 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 and as we pray, for you to continue to renew our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Cell 53, Proclaiming the Kingdom of God for the Sake of the City. For more resources, visit cell53.com.